You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. This is pretty much what they have dared to release to the public. I doubt it's the worst case scenario. They've hastily relabeled it. They've delayed the publication. If they were seeking to reassure us that all was going to be fine, you know, why have they kept it secret for so long? Operation Yellowhammer. My guests Isabel Hilton and John Everard will be assessing the UK government's worst case scenarios for a no-deal Brexit. Also ahead, escalating tensions between China and Taiwan after the former detains a citizen of of the latter, and we'll find out why South Korea is taking its rivalry with Japan to Tokyo's Olympics. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, CEO of China Dialogue, and John Everard, former UK ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea. We will start here in the UK, the government of which has grudgingly released the documents known as Yellowhammer, a sketch of the possible consequences of a no-deal Brexit, such as that the country is scheduled to undertake 49 days from now. It is fair to say that the envisaged scenario falls a stretch short of sunlit uplands, including shortages of some foods, fuel price rises, days-long delays at ports, disruptions of medical supplies and possible civil disorder. Um, John, is the UK seven weeks away from becoming the first country to impose sanctions on itself? It, if you read this document, it does sound very much like that, doesn't it? I mean, what a litany of disasters, uh, all set out in admirable sort of terse civil service prose. You know, ministers would be aware that this might happen, that might happen, the sky might fall in. Um, but yes, uh, especially as this appears to be, uh, the, according to the document, the baseline scenario, uh, it does look pretty bad. I have to point out uh, that this is Yellowhammer, as you just said, uh, because uh, it was decided that the different scenarios uh, were to be named after different birds. So this is Yellowhammer. You wonder what tit and thrush looked like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Isabel, on that, there is a certain amount of debate, dispute, fudging on whether this is the, in fact, worst case scenario, if everything goes possibly could go wrong, goes wrong, or if this, in fact, is just what people more or less expect to happen. I think this is pretty much what they have dared to release to the public. I doubt it's the worst case scenario. Uh, You know, they've they've hastily relabeled it. They've delayed the publication, if, if they were seeking to reassure us that all was going to be fine, you know, why have they kept it secret for so long? I think they're just and, you know, the talk of, ah, oh, yeah, but we've been working hard to mitigate the the, the worst effects uh, since then. This, this this document, you know, was, was dated August, so you'd have to work pretty speedily in, in the intervening five weeks uh, to, to make, and, and I think that the best they've done is to postpone the moment when we all learn to, you know, boil and eat our own shoes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking to John, a man who has experience of living in North Korea, will be absolutely well equipped to deal with what's in store. So I, th- I think I can see you emerging as the national guru. Uh, we, we, we could do a lot worse. Uh, and indeed we have been. But on, on that thought, John, of that happy future Isabel has delineated of us eating our own shoes, does it strike you as indeed it strikes me that there is a not small percentage of the British population, for reasons which I do not comprehend, perhaps because I'm not British, that kind of actually wants all this, that wants rationing, and it wants queues, and it wants to, it wants to sort of have to subsist on spam and lard. 
dash it all, Mona. It exactly. Wants, it wants the wartime spirit. But it, but it, it does. There, there is... Spitfires over the white cliffs of Dover. So jolly foreign <coughs> for, I see. Can, can you just talk in that voice every time you're on the show from now on? Um, but, but it's, can it's, I sing now? <laughs> please. Um, but, it, but it's true. It, it is true, isn't it? There is this strange nostalgia, especially among not people who remember the war, but their children, yes. uh, for World War II. They want it all back. Yes, it's very, very strange, isn't it? Uh, World War II, uh, just to put the record straight, was not actually a bundle of fun, and people I know who lived through it uh, really don't want to do it all again. Nevertheless, people who just narrowly escaped it do tend to look back on the on, on World War II and the early and the late forties and the early fifties, or time, of course, when rationing continued. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of hardship around, um, and a lot of community spirit. There had to be. You had to stick together to survive. Uh, with nostalgia, in the same bizarre way as people look back on the Soviet Union. As a, as a good time, even on Stalin's time, as in the same bizarre way as some Germans look back on East Germany with nostalgia. Nostalgia is a very strange and sometimes very dangerous thing. Isabel, does it strike you that that is what, and this is again me quite cheerfully imposing my own prejudices on the entire discussion, but d- does it strike you that that is what is at the heart, not just of people's responses to Yellowhammer, but the whole Brexit thing? Somebody unfortunately already made the joke about how the generation that fought the war largely favours Europe, but the generation after them who just watched a lot of war movies um, is massively seduced by this idea of Britain standing alone, which, of course, it never actually did at the time anyway. Well, indeed, and and I think they were brought up on those war movies and on the rather simple notion that Britain stood alone and beat the Jerrys. Now, you know, as we now know, uh, that isn't really what happened. Um, But that rather more subtle interpretation of history and indeed the key point which people who fought the war absolutely understand that the European Union was set up to uh, you know reduce the chances of that catastrophe overtaking Europe again we'd had 2,000 years of European civil law uh, wars. Let's not have another one. Um, that seems to have passed them by. And this nostalgia for a simple, for a really simple notion, a deceptively simple notion, when the nation had purpose, uh, identity, all of those things which are much more complicated in today's world. Um, it's, it's, as somebody described, you know, Prime Minister May's whole appeal, building a better yesterday. Uh, John, let's return to the politics of today, however. Labour are suggesting, unsurprisingly, that Parliament should be recalled in the light of the Yellowhammer revelations, which are, of course, not really revelations because the document now published is very similar to the one the Sunday Times published a few weeks ago. Um, This is Parliament, which is, of course, suspended, but as a Scottish court decided yesterday, unlawfully. um, And that matter is to be settled by the Supreme Court on Tuesday. Um, I'm honestly not sure, and I'm not sure anybody is sure about the legalities of recalling Parliament, who would even make that decision or if it's possible, but if it is possible, should it be? Uh, Yes, uh, it should be. Uh, If uh, it's proven that you you can legally recall Parliament, so effectively undo a prorogation, uh, then I I, I think Parliament should come back. There's a great deal to discuss. Uh, The Yellowhead document, uh, you're quite right, it's it's similar to what was leaked, but this is now officially the document. You're you're allowed to have parliamentary debates based on it. It's a bit of a a change. It is quite a stunning document, and it needs to be absorbed, processed, and and commented on by by Parliament. Nobody actually is entirely sure where you go from here. The Supreme Court, as you rightly say, uh, due to hand down ruling on Tuesday. But whether in the interval uh, Boris Johnson is obliged to advise the Queen to suspend her own prorogation, 
We don't know. Uh, there's a great deal of, of constitutional uncharted waters around. Well, there's a fun and rather British thread coming up uh, that, that, you know, if, if the Supreme Court decides against Boris, it means he lied to the Queen. And boy, you know, you don't survive that, do you? I think that's, that's Traitor's Gate stuff. Um, so, so the British public could well be quite cross about that. Yes. Isabel Hilton and John Everard will be back with both of you in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Rylan with the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The US Supreme Court has given the Trump administration permission to enforce plans that severely limit the ability of migrants to claim asylum. The government can now refuse to consider a request for asylum from anyone who failed to apply for it in another country after leaving home but before coming to the US. Critics say the new policy ignores United States and international refugee law. Beijing is on track to drop out from the list of the world's top 200 most polluted cities this year, with smog concentrations falling to their lowest on record in August. The capital city has been on the front line of a war on pollution launched in 2014 and has worked to shut down and relocate polluting industries. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has kicked off a six-week re-election campaign as he seeks a second parliamentary majority from an increasingly divided electorate. Trudeau's popularity has declined this year amid allegations that he and his senior aides tried to interfere in the criminal prosecution of a Montreal engineering company. That's what's making news today. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Isabel Hilton and John Everard. And we'll move on now to Hong Kong. Repercussions of the ongoing pro-democracy protests have been felt in Taiwan. A Taiwanese businessman, one Li Mengchu, has been detained in Shenzhen in mainland China after visiting Hong Kong, where he may have attended one of the demonstrations. China's Taiwan Affairs Office has confirmed that Li is in Chinese custody. As a result, Taiwan has warned all its citizens against visiting Hong Kong or China. Um, Isabel, uh, the unfortunate Li Mengchu is also involved in something called the UN Association for the Advancement of Taiwan, which advocates for Taiwan's elevation to the United Nations. Is it entirely impossible that that may have something to do with China taking an interest in him? I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, but there is also, you know, a kind of fine tradition of kidnapping that the Chinese have kept alive. Um, not not just of people who strayed over the border into Shenzhen, um, but of people who were actually going about their business in Hong Kong and indeed other countries like Thailand. Including the head of Interpol in reasonably recent memory. <laughs> well, the head of Interpol at least returned to China and then wasn't <laughs> allowed to leave. Um, but uh, there was a, a man called Xiao Jianhua, who was a, a Canadian... Um, Chinese-Canadian businessman who looked after the money of the ruling families and something which had earned him some six billion in personal wealth and was living in a luxury hotel in Hong Kong until a, a team from the Chinese security nabbed him and took him back to China and he hasn't been heard of since. So, you know, this and the five booksellers, you will recall, mm. the, the, from the Causeway um, bookshop, one of, one of those, the one who was a Swedish citizen who was detained in Thailand, uh, has 
has not been returned. The others have 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 emerged from this. So, China has you know established a habit of of fingering people, of of getting hold of people that it wants to get hold of, which is one of the reasons that the protests against the extradition law were so fierce. You know, in Hong Kong, people were well aware of the long arm of Chinese security, and they were also well aware that if you disappear into that system, your chances of coming out are not high. Um, and and you know that coupled with the Canadians who've been detained since the detention of Huawei's COO in in Canada, and who are now charged with you know very very heavy charges of 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 espionage under state security laws, these people are not going to get out easily. And so, you know, I think Taiwan is quite right to to warn people that, you know, this is not a safe environment. Uh, John, is this an event, do we think, that has just happened in isolation, the kind of thing that would have happened anyway? Or is this China somehow trying to extend uh, the situation with Hong Kong to Taiwan for some reason, or, or use Hong Kong maybe as a lever to warn Taiwan as to its future behaviour? No, on the contrary. I, I suspect that this is uh, the Chinese security services going about their business in their usual politically tone-deaf and wooden way. The last thing that Beijing wants to do is to establish links between what's going on in Hong Kong now and Taiwan in any sense. Uh, one of the major breaks on Chinese action is the fear that if you intervene forcibly in Hong Kong, effectively ripping up a solemn agreement on Hong Kong, no Taiwanese government is ever going to negotiate peaceful unification with you. And Xi Jinping goes down in history as the Chinese president who lost Taiwan, which he's obviously reluctant to do. Uh, I know I suspect that uh, the force Mr. Lee was simply on China security's hit list. Uh, they happened to spot him in Shenzhen and pounced. I mean, this warning, Isabel, that Taiwan has issued to its citizens, don't go to mainland China, don't go to Hong Kong, will that be a concern in China? There's ob- I mean, there are obviously between Taiwan and mainland China enormous trade links. Absolutely, and investment links. And, you know, a lot of Taiwanese live in China and run very important businesses there. You know, Taiwan was one of the major sources of inward investment when China began to open up. So, yeah, this is pretty chilling. Um the mainland has been putting a lot of pressure on Taiwan in the last, in, uh, really under Xi Jinping. It's been pressuring small countries to to change it, uh, their diplomatic recognition from, from Taiwan to the PRC. It's been building up support in the United Nations. And that, and that effort that Mr. Lee is associated with to get Taiwan recognition in the United Nations is pretty critical for China. China has been putting a lot of effort into countering that. Taiwan held the seat, held the China seat until the early 70s was a member of the Security Council and that was switched to the People's Republic and the mistake Taiwan made at the time uh, because it was under the control of the Kuomintang was to insist on the one China policy to say there could not be two Chinas. There were two Germanys, there were two Koreas in the United Nations. Had they moved at that point when China was relatively weak, they would be recognised in the United Nations as a country now. But they didn't do it and now China's determined to stop them doing it. Okay, well, sticking with the theme of diplomatic disputes in Southeast Asia, the hardy perennial of South Korea's objections to the wartime iconography of Japan is blossoming afresh. Next year, of course, Tokyo hosts the Summer Olympics. South Korea has lobbied the IOC to forbid Japan from flying the rising sun flag during the Games. That's the striped variation on Japan's national flag, which during its several centuries of history was flown by the military of Imperial Japan during its ramp 
rampages across the region in the first half of the 20th century. Um, John, this is one of those things which is very much in the eye of the beholder. The Japanese, of course, see nothing at all uh, offensive or controversial about the rising sun flag, which I think has existed in Japan since the Emperor Meiji. Uh, But to the South Koreans, they regard this much as the Poles might regard the swastika. Yes, that's right. I mean, the the, the rising sun flag in Japan uh, doesn't have the political echoes that it does outside that country. Uh, It is, of course, uh, to this day, uh, the normal flag of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. And this, Uh, this has been a thing on exercises, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Uh, people have objected strenuously to Japanese uh, ships flying the flag, and because it is, you know, the only flag that you know, constitutionally they are supposed to fly, it means eventually the Japanese ships usually withdraw from exercises. There have been a few examples of this. It's it's unfortunate, but that's the way things are. Um, on the other hand, in Korean eyes, uh, the rising sun flag uh, is the flag under which you know, their women were abducted, turned into comfort women, their their workers were taken away uh, and turned into slave workers in Japanese factories, and under which the Japanese execution squads used to rampage through Seoul shooting people. So it does actually look very, very different. but of course, there's more to this than raw sentiment. There always is in mm. East Asian politics. Uh, we are looking at a South Korean president for whom everything is going wrong. Uh, his, his trademark North Korea policy is in tatters. You know, the North Koreans are called him all kinds of rude things uh, over the last few months and make clear that if he thought he was going to meet Kim Jong-un again, uh, he'd have another thing coming. His, economic, his management of the economy has been severely criticized. Uh, the South Korean economy is stalling badly, largely because of measures that he has introduced. And, well, he doesn't have much positive to, to show. So beating up nationalist sentiment and, and attacking the Japanese is always a pretty safe bet. Uh, Maybe his last big political card to play before the April elections, uh, in which, if the polls are to be believed, he's going to go down very, very sharply. Because, Isabel, South Korea can't possibly imagine that this is really going to go anywhere, can they? They can't imagine either that the IOC is going to say Japan to Japan, no, you can't fly that flag at your own Olympics, or that any Japanese government is going to risk the, well, the extraordinary response that would result if they announced unilaterally, no, we're not going to do this so the South Koreans don't get upset. No, I mean, the, I think the only outcome, if this persists, is that South Korea doesn't participate in the Olympics, which is a bit of an own goal uh, to use a clumsy sporting... No, that's, I think that's acceptable. Foot, football, <laughs> you foot, football, football is played at the Olympics. That's oh, fine. <laughs> I, I need you to tell, to reassure me on these points. Um, um, but, you know, again, there's a, there's a wider context. There's a trade dispute going on. There are, you know, complaints in the WTO about about behaviour. This has been this has been growing. And, and as John says, the flag is an easy target. You know, at football matches, at, at, at various other things, the flag has been an issue when it's been required. Um, but there is a, there is still a, a, a real problem at the moment between South Korea and Japan, uh, which is not about the flag. It's about it's about shifting, you know, shifting geostrategic issues in in East Asia. And and I, you know, think it's it's all a sign that we live in a very fragile polity at the moment. I mean, John, is this likely to be something we see more of in the months leading up to the Olympics? Various countries in the region which have some or other issue with Japan using the Olympic Games as a, a locus for those grievances? No, I don't think so. I think this is specifically a Korean issue. This is Moon Jae-in, as I say, beating up on Japan. And he knows that he wins either way. Uh, if uh, Japan refuses, uh, as is very, very likely, uh, to ban the use of what is, after all, you know, a well-established Japanese 
national flag. Uh, then he fulminates and makes fiery speeches against the Japanese, which sound good. If, on the other hand, Japan miraculously does ban the use of the flag, it is a, 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 a racing certainty that somebody from the Japanese right will go along and unfurl a massive version of it <laughs> at the most sensitive possible moment. So the Japanese get slapped on the face either way. John Everard and Isabel Hilton, thank you both. In a moment, more from the streets of Hong Kong. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. Monocle's September issue is here, and we're getting busy in this bumper business edition. Before we get on with the job, we meet the new dean of New York's famed Parsons School of Design in the handsome surrounds of the Rose Reading Room in the city's public library. In affairs, we view the way to work through a diplomatic lens, joining the French ambassador to Italy to learn how to host 3,000 sharply dressed guests whilst showcasing the best assets of his nation, champagne and all. The business section is packed with insight from bright young entrepreneurs and seasoned CEOs alike. From a Spanish restaurateur with a new way of feeding customers to some bright new ideas on the four-day work week, we spin the globe and forecast the future of work. In culture, we put crowdfunding in the media to the test and find out what it takes for a new publication to stand out. Plus, we ask directors of some of the best museums how they manage. Then we retreat into the sun-soaked Californian countryside to relax in a modernist getaway that's been given a new lease of life. Our September issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage, as do the same angry voices. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24 or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, a dispatch from the team at Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau. Hong Kong's Taihang neighbourhood will be kicking off tonight with its narrow streets full of screaming, smoke, loud bangs, banners and huge crowds. It's going to be a riot. But there's no reason for alarm. The city is about to celebrate the Mid-Autumn or Mooncake Festival and Taihang's Fire Dragon procession is one of the highlights. Three nights of parades, hundreds of performers, thousands of incense sticks and far, far too many firecrackers. It's easy to forget amidst the ongoing anti-government protests that life goes on as normal for most people. Families will gather for a festive meal and try to avoid talking about politics. The city isn't on permanent lockdown, far from it, although anyone watching events unfold from afar could be excused for thinking so. In fact, even living here can feel like an alternative reality. Locals were taken aback one Sunday morning to spot a Dantean inferno on the cover of a newspaper accompanied by the headline, The Night the City Burned. Sure, it was certainly hot outside the 7-Eleven, but nothing that a dollop of Factor 50 couldn't fix. Protesters have been lighting a few fires recently. Yes, it's a worrying escalation, but it's also important to maintain some perspective. Hong Kong is still a safe city, and the protesters are well-behaved. 
A reminder of this came yesterday, when a designer over on assignment from the UK was caught up in protests on her way home. She was helpfully handed a face mask and given alternative directions. She said she still feels comfortable walking alone at night in Hong Kong, far more so than in London. When the smoke clears in Taihang, attendance at this year's Fire Dragon Parade will almost certainly be down. Hong Kong has seen a 40% drop in tourists, but the show and the city will go on. The Fire Dragon dance originally began as a way of warding off bad luck. Hong Kong could use some good fortune right now. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>